Welcome to the Straight White Male Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Furr, pastor at Covenant Christian Church and author of the book Straight White Male, published by Westminster John Knox Press. This podcast is a place for expanding the conversation around race, gender, sexuality, faith, and identity. Along the way, I'm talking to the contributors from my book, as well as other voices who can help us think critically and faithfully about a more just life together. My guest is Trey Ferguson, writer and pastor, and another guest whose Twitter timeline I look to for inspiration, humor, and the occasional swipe at people who troll Twitter looking for fights. Trey is the director of equipping ministry at Refugee Church in Miami. He hosts the new Translation podcast and the Three Black Men podcast, and he writes uh, in his newsletter, The Sun Do Move. I sat down with Trey to get his thoughts on how we see the Jesus we often miss, the rotten fruit that's making us all sick, and how we learn to see the Bible through a lens that serves us well. All right, well, let's jump in. So I I always ask everybody the same version of this question, or some version of this question um, that sort of roots us in our identity and what our our, our experiences uh, are in this world where we're straight white men straight white men have sort of created the system where we are the the see ourselves as the archetype right by which everyone right. else has to measure themselves and i've asked everyone sort of when did you come to awareness that okay that's the that's the thing but i don't fit that thing yeah uh and then how did you experience the consequences of that? Yeah, I think for me, it was a little bit of a different process than for some, because I'm not one of those people who, like, I know some people grew up in white evangelical churches and, like, 2016 kind of opened their eyes to some stuff and stuff like that. Now, that's mm-hmm. not my story. Like, I grew up with very proud Black parents, um, originally from Brooklyn, New York. I grew up in um, the Clinton Hill neighborhood, which now looks way different than it did back then. But, mm-hmm. like, it was mm-hmm. a Black neighborhood. I had Black neighbors. I went to a Black church. Um, I went to, in kindergarten, I went to Allen Christian School, like, run by uh, Reverend Floyd Flake and I just, I was in school, Black people and all that stuff um i eventually moved to richmond virginia which was at the time a majority black city i lived on the south side had a couple like my neighborhood had a a sprinkling of non-black people in it but i was in school with black kids that was what i knew um my parents were very intentional about um taking us to kwanzaa celebrations and street festivals bizarre things of that nature so i would i didn't have any sense there was anything deficient about who I was. Middle school, I experienced my first bit of culture shock when my mother decided that I needed to be challenged a bit more or whatever. That's that's the code word they use when like they don't like the schools you in. They want to put you in better schools, uh, right. better schools, quote unquote. Uh-huh. And I got put into this private school where all of a sudden at the time, by the time I graduated, it was one of three. But when I got there, it was one of four black kids in my class, like in in, mm. in my graduating class. So imagine me living in all black neighborhoods, going to all black schools, black churches and everything. And now all of a sudden, like, oh, snap, this is different. And it wasn't just like I was with any white kids it was an affluent situation right right? so now i'm not only aware that oh i look different than y'all 
my life is different than yours. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It was like, dad, can you drop me off at the side of the school? Cause I want them to see what you're driving type situation, <laughs> things of that nature. And yeah. that was a stark reality for me because um, I, I then had to confront all of the differences, not just in race, but in class and socioeconomic status, all of those things. Um, but I was like 11, you know, so I'm not thinking of it in these terms. It was like, yo, this is weird. This is different for me. And that was something that I struggled with in my own ways. Only an adolescent could. Like, I, I think the, the starkest it got for me at one time, I had uh, taken a girl to a dance in like the 10th grade. And because of the school we were at, like she happened to be a white girl. And she introduced me to her parents and was almost promptly and immediately transferred out of that school. Like her, her parents pull, pulled her out of the school, you know? I was like, mm. oh, I don't think they like that. Like, oh, I don't, I don't mm. think they like that, you know? Um, and so when it's time to go to college, I was like, let me see if I can get into a different type of environment where it's a little more diverse, where I'm not sticking out quite as much. And um, so when I, I ended up making my way down to Miami that way and... I recognize that power dynamics and things, they they evolve, they exist everywhere. It's just that in America where white people constitute or people who who we perceive as white constitute mm-hmm. a numerical majority that they happen to be at the top of that. Slightly different in Miami a little bit just because demographics are a little different, but it wasn't until I became an adult where I started being able to name some of these things and how they work and, and start theorizing about why things are the way they are. So for me, uh, it was a journey of being pulled out of what was normative for me, which was at one point blackness. Like that that was normative to the mm-hmm. point where I was like, oh, wait, no, this is different. This is not everybody's experience. And then being able to like put things around that as I came into adulthood. I don't know. I hope that answers your question. It does. Yeah, it does. I mean, and I've, you know, all of these, um, this is the 10th of the interviews that I've done. And every time I've asked this question of whether it was a, a, a woman or an LGBTQ person or person of color, the age has always uh, stark to me where this stuff becomes prevalent, you know, and, and middle school uh, makes sense in the sense that that's when we start to become aware of like our, how we relate to other people and what box we fit in and what, what, who are, yeah. who our people are and that kind of thing. Some I've heard have been even earlier than that. And um, I, I think it's just, I asked that question because I think it's useful for people to, who don't have that experience in life. Right, who don't right. really have to ever think about that, the implications about who they take through the school dance and that kind of thing, to hear um, how these norms shape the people that are our neighbors and yeah. the exper- experiences that it that it gives uh, for people like that. And I mean, you know, you made a very intentional life choice because of that experience, right? I, I really did. I am, yeah, here I am in Richmond, Virginia. I know I don't want to be in like capital of the Confederacy (laughs) with all of these, you know, in this particular environment, let me go to a much different cultural city to, to start my adult life because, you know, I I had a taste of this and it's not exactly where I want to be if I'm summarizing it right. You know? Yeah. You know what? That's actually pretty accurate. And and that's something I didn't reckon with 
fully until I came to being an adult. Because although I'm originally from New York, my first few years there, Richmond is where I consider home, right? That's mm-hmm. where my family still is. My mother, both my sisters, all of my nephews are still in Richmond, still go there for a lot of holidays. So in many ways, that's home. And at times I get homesick. But I think about it, and no, there really was an intentional decision for me to like try to start something new because I realized as I got older, like some of that stuff was kind of um, I hate overusing the word traumatic, but it really impacted me in in mm-hmm. a very serious way. Like that dance example is funny mm-hmm. because like I don't I don't stay up at night crying over nothing, but it was really starting to me. Mm-hmm. And it was I realized that it impacted me way differently than it did everybody else when um happened to me on Facebook a few years later, um, in the aftermath of this whole Donald Trump situation, and people were talking about like whether or not he was a fascist. And mm-hmm. I remember the girl's mother had commented on something I said, like replied to one of my Facebook comments. She didn't remember who I was or anything like that. And she was like, oh, this rhetoric right here is why we can't get together as a country and you are part of the problem. Mm. I didn't give it to her like I wanted to give it to her, but in my mind, I wanted to be like, no, as a matter of fact, like you're literally the problem. Like I I, I remember who you are. I I remember who you did and, and how you think about things. But what was so interesting to me, what stuck with me about that was that that interaction, that instance meant so little to her that she didn't even remember me. She didn't remember my face, who I was, my name, any of those things. Um, she just like saw me as as a black man in that instance. Like, oh, you feeling this way is part of the problem. But I remember her name. I remember her face. I remember who she was. I remember how I felt in that moment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I that stuck with me that, that, you know, I don't want to say I had to carry because I've, I've since left it. But at the end of the day, it, it, that, that is something that sh- helped shape who I was and how I saw the world. And it didn't impact her at all in that way. Right. That's one of those things that like a lot of times you don't have to worry about how <laughs> these, these instances, these stories, these episodes impact you. Like when that's not anything that she'll ever have to worry about if an interaction was because of that. Like, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that's that's an amazing uh some amazing symmetry that that one person came back around and found her, found her way to a, a Facebook post of yours where it does illustrate sort of what what people see and what they don't see yeah. and uh it's hard i would imagine that would be an easy thing to internalize right like as a young person right there's here's this yeah. person who doesn't even really see me you know it doesn't it doesn't matter doesn't matter anything about who I am or what my character or what our, my relationship with her daughter is or right. any of that. It just, right. you know, she doesn't see any of that. And, and she still doesn't, right? Even after right. all these years. Yeah. To this day, never had a single conversation with her, which like now as an adult, it's easier for me to like, oh, like, I can't take this personally because she doesn't know me. Like mm-hmm. none, none of that happened. We've never had a conversation for her to find out. Like she doesn't know where I stand on half of the things that she wants to ascribe to me. Uh, so mm-hmm. and even like in on Twitter or whatever, like I don't take anything personal because y'all, you, you don't know. I would have we would have to have something personal going on for me to take something personally. And, and mm-hmm. that's helped me as a real, like maybe therapy helped me unpack some of this, you know, reading or whatever. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's one of those things where I actually pity her mm. more than I feel bad for myself because it seems like a very shallow way of experiencing life. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is. And you, and you miss a lot. Um, you don't, yeah. you know, when you, when you flatten people like that, um, you, you miss a lot. And this is somewhat, I'm trying to get people to understand when I, when I'm with, 
with my book and with this work, in a lot of ways, I'm trying to turn around and talk to people like me mm. and say, when you are alienated in this way from people who are different from you in whatever way, or right. you're, you're willing and, and, and able or intend to reduce people because of what, how you perceive them, then you miss who they are. And if you miss who they are, then you miss the image of God in them. Exactly. And if you're missing the image of God in them, then you are not in the kind of relationship with God that you want to be in. So this is this has a direct correlation to, uh, you know, if you want to be in relationship with God, if you want to have a relationship with God, then you have to have a relationship with your neighbor. And if you're alienated from every neighbor that uh, that you want to reduce for whatever reason, then you are shutting yourself off from that much more of the experience of God. Yeah, and, that's a fact. And I think. It's also important to note that like when we talk about the language of reducing somebody to something, it's often hard for people to wrap their minds around. It's like, well, I'm not trying to reduce anybody to anything. But when we hold up, as you said, like the straight white male is the standard as, as what we're doing, we're ultimately reducing anything that does not conform to that pattern. Right. Mm -hmm. So anything that doesn't meet that standard is somehow deficient, even if we don't view it as deficient, like when. Whether you're a hardline complementarian who says that women can't do X, Y, Z, that means that men are the standard to which, like, the only, the only way you'll experience fullness is under the tutelage of a man, right? If white cultural standards are the standard that we accept, anybody who's not automatically of that culture has to assimilate into that culture to to be that, right? Um, Anybody who's not uh, uh, heterosexual has to aspire to that standard, like, when it comes to, oh, this is the, the, the biblical definition of marriage, whatever we have. So even if you're not trying to reduce somebody, setting that as the standard inherently makes somebody else efficient. And the thing about that is when we've already decided that, no, this is the standard to which we're, because a straight white male, as, as your project's title indicates, that's not like a biblical standard. That's not a moral standard. That's a cultural one, right? right? So when that is, we miss, like you said, the richness of what God has implanted in each of these other people. Because if Genesis is to be believed and God made everybody in in the Imago Dei, right? If mm -hmm. Male and female created them. If, if if everything, if everybody has been stamped with that imprint of God, then it would behoove us to step away from whatever standards we've set up as normative, mm. and and try to see the beauty of this. So when I say like, oh, I pity you because it's a shallow way of going. It's not me trying to be judgmental. It's like no, it's it'll it'll be like going through an art museum with your eyes closed and your mm. ears plugged and your hands tied behind your back and missing everything that was that was specifically crafted to be taken in with all of your senses you know mm. that's perfect yeah i like that image a lot as far as a way to describe the cost uh of it because um you do miss so much and uh, and so much of it is internalized um, yeah. i think a lot of people would say Oh well, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't use that measurement as the ideal. Well, I mean, it's when it's so ingrained in the culture that we live in, and it, and we're all socialized in that. Um, yeah. Then you've been shaped by it in ways that you don't know. And so, for um, for for me, I I think of it as like my life, my lifelong project. Like by the time I came to, I came to awareness about how I had been socialized in that and those patterns to think that who I am is the norm in how that shapes, how I react to other people. It'll take me the rest of my life to untangle, you know, the tangle that that created in my spirit. So, so that's the work, right? That's the, the work right. is to like, see the places where try to, you know, try to find the places within yourself that where this particular thing has, 
has shaped how you see other people and see the world. So yeah, and it's not just your work. That's that's my work. That's everybody's right, work. Right. Because sure. at the end of the day, yeah. like some I I saw a tweet from from a, a black a black man, a black a black writer the other day who was <laughs> saying that there's no such thing as interracial marriage because races do not exist. There's only one race, the human race. And then he said something real curious. He said that um, this is a black man. He said, he said, uh, I'm sorry, racism a thing. So he's just a man. Um, he said, he said that uh <laughs> uh me and my in parentheses, he put white wife are not different races right that's what he said he said race is not a thing and then he said my white wife and i are not different races and i asked a question i said what is a white wife um you know because like even as we try to do this whole like holy thing where like no there's only one race and the bible says and in, in acts that from one blood god made all make like we, we could do all of that and we could dance around the actual reality of where we live right now but even like your construct of this you cannot get that that tweet out saying that there's no such thing as race without acknowledging that your wife was white and i think like part of the work that we examine is what does that even mean because if if we rewind this three four hundred years your wife would not identify herself as white and that, mm. that that was a thing that arose in direct response to black. Like white is the opposite of black. It, it, mm -hmm. It's not an on, it, it's not a biological reality. It's an ontological reality. Like the, the, even, even Italians had to become white eventually. Right. You know, Irish people had to become. And, and and I say all of that to say that this isn't just like work that that straight white men need to do. It, it's for all of us because we're all breathing the same air, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of us have as you say, internalize this so much that we don't even recognize like, wait, no, it doesn't have to be this way. Somebody made it this way and we won't know true freedom until we can see beyond this way. Right. Yeah. So this, I want to shift gears a little bit because I found, so I, I came across you on Twitter and uh, your Twitter feed is the kind of Twitter feed that I like because there's wisdom obviously there, there's theological insight and then there's humor, right? And, um, <laughs> and there's also... Uh, the willingness to uh, to sort of just rise above and put in its place this undercurrent that exists on Twitter, yeah, which is uh, you know something that um, I, I think actually is is on the on the verge of getting worse, not better. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I so that's where I found you, and then I started digging in some to to uh, to your writing and things like that, and was looking through some things and. Just appreciated your theological insight and the and the perspective that you came from, and I and I came across this piece um, you were writing about one of the post resurrection encounters where yeah. you know the disciples, the people followers of Jesus who are with him and don't recognize him, right. and you know this question of well, how can people who uh, you know who spend all their all, so all this time with Jesus not recognize him? And then right. you said, you know, I don't recognize a lot of the stuff that I'm hearing that I hear about Jesus these days. And I really connected with that because, you know, uh, some of the things that I hear and the Jesus that shapes conservative evangelicalism, uh, Christian nationalism, all of those things. I don't know who that Jesus is. I don't right. know who it is they're talking about. And at the end of that piece, you had this great line and I wanted to unpack it some more. You said. When you can't trust the people, look for the patterns. Yeah. And so yeah. I just wanted to see if you would unpack that more for us. Yeah. So we're talking in that particular piece, the, the road to Emmaus, where it says they're like, uh, the road was 
like a seven mile journey and this man comes along while they're having this conversation and starts like, Hey, what y'all talking about? While they're sitting there grieving yeah. <laughs> the, the, the death of Jesus and his rumored resurrection or the disappearance of the body from the tomb at the very least. And, and this, this man comes along like, Hey, what are y'all talking about? I'm like, yo, what do you, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? What were you talking about? You, you haven't you heard they, they killed, they killed Jesus, you know, Jesus. And then now his body's missing. Some people saying that he raised from the dead and, and then the man starts talking about like, hey, like, are y'all chipping? Don't, don't y'all read scripture at all? Like, all of this was perfectly clear. And then he starts walking through it. It says that he, uh, he was getting ready to part ways and like, hey, yo, it's dark. Like, come kick with us for the night. And then in that moment that the, the special visitor takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he passes away. And then their eyes were open and they recognized Jesus. And it was fascinating to me because if you look through the Gospels, you see all of these instances of Jesus taking bread breaking it, blessing it, and then feeding the people. It happens when he feeds the 5,000. It happens mm-hmm. at the Last Supper and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's almost as if in that moment, like, oh, my goodness, he's, he, he's taking the, he's blessing, he's breaking, oh, my gosh, that's Jesus. Yeah. And it's one of those things where kind of like the masked singer where you you can't see who it is, but you try to guess based on like the the movements and, and the gates. And if you can recognize enough about something, maybe if, if you can't see somebody, if you can recognize the voice, like, wait a second, that sounds like, or you can't hear them clearly, but you can see the pattern and that, that movement looks familiar. And there are times when we struggle to trust our senses because our senses are unreliable. But if you can discern a pattern, like, wait a second, that looks like Jesus. Because the interesting thing about it is in a lot of pre- and post-resurrection occurrences in the gospel, people struggle to recognize Jesus. When the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, they think it's a ghost at first. Until they're like, wait, like who's the only person we know who could possibly do this? It's Jesus. <laughs> like, um, right. and, and, and after the resurrection, everybody's like, oh, snap, like, yeah, that that that's Jesus. Oh my goodness, there's there's Jesus. And when Peter's in the boat fishing after he's sent back to Galilee after Jesus has died and raised from the dead, and on the shore here, somebody like, hey, let down your nets on uh, one more time. And he pulls out the fish and was like, oh snap, this is exactly how I met Jesus. That's Jesus right there. And he hops out of the boat and he goes because even when the emotions have 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 led us to to distrust our senses or we don't have enough input when you can see a pattern you recognize like that's 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 jesus and there are times even like relationally speaking right my father passed when i was 14 years old and when i hang out with my aunt my father's sister there are times when she forgets that i am not my father because i talk like my father like we have the same Mm. voice Literally, like, and I know this. I'll acknowledge myself. I look kind of like him, but I'm taller and better looking. But um, <laughs> uh, but, I say the same but, thing about my dad. Yeah, yeah. But when you look like him and 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 you talk like him, sometimes we even think in similar ways. Like she, she, she's like, "Yo, my brother's in over Thanksgiving." She had asked me. She was like, "Hey, when did we come over from Jamaica?" My father was an immigrant, and I was like, "Uh huh." What, what are you talking about? Like. Oh, you know, I'm not my dad, right? She's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I keep doing that Um, because the pattern seems so familiar, like even the ways that we speak. And so when I say like, when you can't trust the people, look for the patterns. If we are to believe that Christianity is a relationship with Jesus, and I know that language trips some people up, some people can't stand it or whatever, but if the idea is to grow more like Jesus and to become like Jesus, then we ought to study 
Jesus, as much as we know about him through the gospel accounts, enough to be able to recognize the patterns of Jesus, mm-hmm. where Jesus would be, the people that Jesus would feel called to serve, who Jesus would feel called to extend mercy to, who Jesus would feel called to rebuke in any given situation. Mm-hmm. And so when people tell me that, no, we can't do this because Jesus said X, Y, Z, and like, oh, that feels weird because based on what I know about Jesus, Jesus stands between the woman who stands accused of sin and accuses everybody else of their sins. And then frees her to live beyond the life of sin that she's known and, and, and all of that impact, right? And I see that, okay, uh, as, as we're guilting people for, for whatever might ail them and calling them lazy, like, wait, no, it seems that Jesus would actually be seeking out these people who might be disabled and, and trying to bring them, heal them, right? Um, bring them back into community. He's trying to extend those olive branches. And you got to be able to discern the patterns of Jesus enough to know which rhetoric we got to be tuning out Uh, Um, because at the end of the day, Jesus also said that a whole lot of people are going to get to the judgment seat and they're going to say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we, we we did all these things. We proclaimed your name. He's going to say, get away from me. You workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Mm. You didn't know me. I didn't know you because like, if you knew me, you would know my patterns. You wouldn't know my, I don't know what y'all had going on over there. (laughs) And so there ought to be a healthy distrust, a healthy suspicion of of, Mm. of some of the stuff we hear, even with just that in mind, the fact that like, no, everybody who call on the name of Jesus ain't really on the same team. Right. We got to be able to trust the pattern, even when we can't trust the people. Yeah. And that's, it's it's useful. And it's so, uh, everything you said, is basic in my mind, basic discipleship, right? This should, we should not, this should not be in question, but it is right. 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 (laughs) And so, uh, what, one thing I struggle with is that I don't, I can't get to the framework, right? Like to me, I, I study the patterns, right? I see what, what the things that you described of uh, Jesus taking what he has, breaking it open, asking for God's blessing on it, and then sharing it with people. And that being the pattern by which Jesus does ministry and reveals himself and shows himself, shows who he is to the people around him. And I can't line that up with some of the things that folks around me who, who want to live under the same Christian tent, right, right, are saying about about the same Jesus. Right. And I think so much of like being able to, uh, and this is where, you know, I started with talking about your Twitter account and the ways you engage people and what, you know, what you choose not to engage, which I think is admirable to be in that arena, right. With, with this, um, this white Christian nationalist dialogue that's happening now and the way that, that, that Jesus is being co-opted into that. Right. Uh, for me, I, f- I feel like I have to be able to access what Jesus it is they're talking about, but I can't yeah. connect to that. I can't. I, I can't because I don't see any of the patterns, right? Any of the patterns that you just described at, at work in that. And so, so I think maybe, and I'll see what you think about this. I think maybe the work of those of us for for f- those of us who live in the church and work in the church uh, is to take to work with the people that are in our sphere. Mm-hmm. to just drill those patterns, right? This is the thing that we have to, we have to train ourselves to see. We have to train other people to see and teach them to see is that, no, this is what we see Jesus doing. Yeah. Right. And it's, and you, it, how does that pattern, when you take that pattern and put it up against the world that you live in, what comes into view? Right. You know? 
a lot of times we like to take the Great Commission and and use it as a directive in in order to to evangelize the world, which has its place depending on where you fall on that spectrum. There are people who yeah. call all proselytizing efforts harmful, whatever. That's another conversation for another day. But ultimately, the command is to go and make disciples, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Jesus doesn't say to go and and find like new people at, at, at like he does say to the ends of the earth but ultimately if the call is to make disciples what does it mean to be a disciple it's a student jesus picked 12 people who are already jewish people they already shared the same religious framework that jesus did and he turned them into disciples of himself and what that meant was they had to walk with him enough to be able to see things the way that he did to read the scriptures the way that he did, to see humanity the way that he did, to feel called to serve people the way that he did, to forsake a level of comfort and and riches the way that he did. That's what being a disciple is. And so if we are to take that seriously and not just as a mandate to go and 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 preach to, to other people and, and bring yeah. the gospel to them. We we have to bring the gospel. We got to make sure that we understand this gospel that we're carrying. We have to make sure that we are actually making disciples because at the end of the day, just as all of Jesus' disciples were born into that religious framework and he had to make disciples out of them, we are often born into Christianity. And we think that we have this great light to share with everybody, but we haven't done any of the work to uncover what that light is. Like we got the light, we ain't turned it on yet. Mm. Um, And so part of that mission as pastors is to work among the flock, to turn them into disciples and not just fans, to turn people from fans Mm. into followers, turn people who are born into this framework into people who can actually understand the patterns and why we have this framework. And there is um there are lots of traditions that that, that catechize people right like we treat mm-hmm. we, we train people how to say the right things and to recall the right scriptures to prove the right points but there's a dearth of critical thinking right one of the things that jesus often did within the framework that they had was to take what was a common understanding to question it and flip it into something like, no, this is the way that God sees this. And I'm not sure how often we have that. Like a lot of times we'll lean on understandings that have been given to us through tradition. And we don't question whether or not the tradition that we were reared in is the same thing or is a tradition that Jesus would have recognized as valid. And uh, one of the oh, things that I, I, I wholly envy about this, like I admire this about about our Jewish uh, brothers and sisters around the world, is that like questions are 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 not only valid but encouraged in their tradition. Mm. We don't have a whole lot of that um, in ours, mm. and I think that that's a healthy thing in what it means to be a disciple. Jesus teaches some of his deepest lessons in response to the questions of his disciples. Mm-hmm. And not he doesn't reply in dogma and proof text and scriptures. Jesus will reply with a story, right? A parable, mm-hmm. because he recognizes the power of narrative mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and how that goes. Yeah, a truth so that can't we, be re- a truth that can't be reduced, and a truth that also asks something of you, right? Like, right. That's the thing about it is that like Jesus never gives you an answer that you don't have to think about. And right. That is. Uh, irritating sometimes but it's better for us you know um which transitions me a little bit to this other piece that i wanted to get into and i really liked um you wrote about rotten fruit 
right? Yeah. And, uh, about the rotten fruit in our diets and how, you know, so much of, uh, and I, it was, I thought it was an interesting way of approaching it, you know, thinking about most of what we eat, we eat because it's what people put in front of us. Correct. Right. From the time we were little. And so like you see that around the world, like people have much different cultural experiences of, of what they eat, what they consume, how they cook it, what they season it with all of that. Right. Um, unless you're my kids and you don't eat anything anybody puts in front of you. So, uh, but that I, I just, it, it so it's, it, it, that was a useful way of looking at it, which, you know, we, we put this down, we realize that it, it doesn't shape us. And then we get to this point where we have to realize, we have to think about, is this even serving me? Well, is this, right. is this like, give like satisfying my appetite? Like, am I being raised? Was I, was I handed stuff? That's actually making me sick. Right. You know, and I think, you know, it overlaps a lot with what you were just saying about critical thinking. Like, wait a minute. I've just all my life been eating what was put in front of me. Right. right. And I didn't ask any questions about it because I've, I trusted the people who, who made it. I trusted people yeah. who taught me that they had my best interest at heart and that they were, you know, um, and I, you know, I think that is the struggle for a lot of, not just, but for, it's particular in a particular way. I, I see that happening with folks when we talk about white supremacy, yeah. um, because to acknowledge that uh, you were served white supremacy is to acknowledge that somebody that cared about you put that in front of you. Right. And that's a hard thing for people to come to grips with that. Right. Wait a minute. This, this hasn't served me. Well, I was told a lie that is um that has been perpetuated in my life and somebody that you know whether it was my grandfather whether it was my mother whether it was whatever ancestor my whatever it was somebody that now that in some ways i love and idolize right who fed right. me this rotten stuff and facing that truth is so difficult that for some people they'd rather just keep eating the rotten stuff right, right than admit that maybe we need to change our diet. Right. right. So I, it was a useful image for me all through that. And I just, I see it also happening a lot in this, in our cultural moment right now. And I see it happening in a lot of churches um, because I see people that are going to churches and going and, gi- and giving themselves to communities, but not thinking about what that community is putting on the table. Correct. Correct. And, uh, I just wonder how what your experience of that is like, you know, moving in and through your own religious experience, cultural experience. Well, let's, let me break it up a little bit. So I think one place to start is, and I talked with um, Ramal Toon a few episodes ago, and he was talking about coming to grips with things that haven't served him well. And he was, you know, he was realizing like patterns of masculinity that haven't served me well. Yeah, And I was like, this is good. Where did you learn to figure that out? And he was like, in therapy. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, that's a big word. And you just cussed in front of us for some people because <laughs> they were, that's therapy is a bad word. But like that, that self-examination of, uh, oh, wait a minute. Let me look at what's not serving me well. Right. And so I wonder, I guess I'll put that same question to you. Like when and how did you develop that discernment around let me see if what I'm eating here is 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 giving me what I need. I think okay, so 
I got to get a little nerdy here. I, I arrived there when I was examining the integrity of my hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because here's the reality of the situation. You can construct a valid, like a logically valid biblical argument in defense of chattel slavery. You can do that. Mm-hmm. And I want to be honest about that. You can do that. I think that that is morally wrong reprehensible because you can also conduct uh construct a very valid biblical argument against the institutors from mm-hmm. child slavery right mm-hmm. um as you read scripture scripture reads you mm. that that's a thing and the reason that this became relevant to me is because okay i'm a black man who was descended from enslaved peoples on two different continents right um that, that that's my testimony and mm-hmm. i vehemently reject the theological framework that justifies slavery. Um, intimately familiar with it. There are entire denominations, plural, only one of which is currently existing under the same name and banner as when it was first founded, but entire like dom- denominations that were founded specifically for uh, protecting and advancing the institution of chattel slavery in the United States of America. Um, and in thinking of like, okay, how did they get there? I had to reckon with the hermeneutic and how they read the Bible and how biblical inerrancy, um, as, as, as we currently know it, as articulated in the Chicago State, was actually a recent development in the history of like biblical studies that arose around the same time all these people started trying to justify slavery. Um, they were like, no, you read the Bible this way, right? Um, and I was like, well, that doesn't serve me well. Why would I read the Bible this way if I don't have to? If people just started reading it that way and if the people who read it that way tried to enslave all of my ancestors, right? <laughs> um, right. Now, there's also this other thing about it where a lot of people who read the Bible that way say that, no, women not only cannot be pastors or or teach men, but they have certain roles to occupy. I'm like, okay, if the same hermeneutic, the same lens of reading and viewing and interpreting scripture that tried to keep my ancestors in bondage perpetually, like, and if they had it their way, if there was not the bloodiest war in the history of the United States to this day fought and lost on their part, like if that had not happened, I wouldn't be sitting right here either. Like I, I, I would still be enslaved. Oh, uh, if the same people who read the Bible that way mm-hmm. are now reading it this way to say the women have to occupy this, like, can I walk in integrity while rejecting one of these arguments and not the other? Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, right. it became a, a, a situation where, OK, I felt like integrity demanded that if I'm going to walk it this way. Right. Because I want to be clear about it. When I read Paul's words and, and all of the, the qualifications for being a pastor, um. I do think that he had a man in mind. And then I can get into like the the, the weeds right there. People are like, oh, uh, how do you say husband of one wife? And I'm like, what, do you think a single man can be a pastor? Okay, so already you've considered a non-literal interpretation of that. I can go there with you, but no, let's get past that. I do think that Paul had men in mind. Mm. I'm not that concerned about that, though, because Paul's mm. cultural, like, Right. Thank his, you. His culture yeah. was different, like where, where he was. The, his, his cultural moment was different. And Paul also understood or assumed that Jesus would be coming in a much different time frame than, than what has actually happened. Here we are 2000 years later waiting on the same thing that Paul was waiting on. I'm not that concerned with with that particular aspect of it. Right. And I arrived there because I recognized that the same theological framework, the same hermeneutic did not serve me well. So why would I then expect you to feed on this diet that I myself have have rejected. And it's not to throw mm. out the words of Paul. It's how we approach, how we interpret these mm. words in our mm. times, yeah. right? right? So for me, it's just a matter of being consistent because what happens, a lot of people like to look at that 
whole episode is a blip on the radar theology. And I'm like, no, we need to examine that. How did we get it this wrong? Now we can mostly safely assume that most of us us agree that some of those people got slavery wrong. Some people deny that to this day. I don't have time to argue with them. Mm -hmm. But most of us can agree at this point. They got it wrong. Then the question becomes how? Let's not repeat those same mistakes. And so somebody like me who enjoys questions, like, no, let's, how do they arrive at this conclusion? And and that's how, when I talk about stuff that doesn't serve me well, if it doesn't serve me well, and I've since tried to cut it out of my diet, I'm going to stop trying to feed it to you, right? Like if I'm trying to get my body right and I'm in the gym and I'm cutting out red meat and pork or whatever, I'm not going to come home and start feeding my kids all pork hot dogs or whatever you know like i'm, I'm, I'm not going to feed right. the things that i'm trying to get out of my system to, to like it's not how i operate um and so i think if you endeavor to do these things with integrity and with consistency you have to examine like okay is this serving me well like would, would i want this for myself mm. And that's one of the reasons I think it's important to do things like this in community, because at the end of the day, and like I don't want to point fingers or make things too uncomfortable, but the hermeneutic that I've rejected because it doesn't serve me well, does serve some people well. It absolutely mm-hmm. does. It serves straight white men well. <laughs> it, it, Thank it, you. It, You're right. It, 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 it does. Um, right. And so the question then becomes, if we can then acknowledge that it does not serve straight black men as well or straight white women as well or gay white men or the moment you fall away from any of those things like is this something that serves the community well is it when i picture the new heavens and the new earth when i picture the new jerusalem is 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 this something that i see being present there and the answer to that question will reveal just as much about you as it does your theology you know right i think this is one of the reasons why it's harder for people who live in uh, in material privilege, in whatever form that takes, whether it's you know straight privilege or male privilege or white privilege, because they have, we do believe that this this theology was created. It, it was you know this way of viewing scripture was created. This way of thinking about God was created um, because we thought it would serve us materially well. Right. You know, it. it, it it kept us in positions of power. It allowed us to accumulate and sustain wealth. It, it, you know, it afforded us all kinds of benefits and privileges. And it's, sir, it's, it's done that really well. Right. But what it's brought is spiritual death. Right. And, 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 and so I, I think the, when I, when I look at, I think, and that's what it, I think that's why it's hard for people to see. It's, it's hard for people to see what is empty calories Right in this in this way because it's like well my life feels pretty good right like I I've got all the material comforts right but like it's costing other people materially right physically bodily and it's costing you your soul <laughs> right yeah. so you know that's that's what I I'm trying to get people to to think about is is uh, what is um, what are the ways for example that that masculinity being framed and articulated the way that it's been. Um, yes, it has allowed men to remain in power, but it's also created a wound within a lot of men right? that they take out in some very harmful and abusive ways. And it's hurting yeah. everybody. It's hurting the people that they're, that are within their reach and it's hurting, they're hurting themselves. Right. So it's not serving anybody. 
Yeah, gain the world, lose your soul. The yeah. the 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 rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, "Hey, like, how how does this whole thing work?" And 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 Jesus says, "Hey." Gives him the commandments. He says, "Yo, I've been doing this forever. Like I, I know this thing. Like I, I know how this goes." Um, and he exhibits an actual knowledge of of sound, decent sound in theology. He doesn't sound heretical. He's not quote uh-huh. unquote, woke. He's not any of that stuff. Like he he has the right answers. He said, "There's one thing that you haven't done. Um, sell all your possessions, give it away, and then come follow me." And you know, I say that because you mentioned like material privilege uh-huh. and everything. Uh-huh. And in that story, it says that he walks away sad. Yep. Jesus says, all you got to do is step up off this, like leave, leave away from, from all of the stuff that you're clinging to, leave away from the comforts of your life, leave, leave the things that you've acquired for yourself and everything. And it says the man in the presence of Jesus walks away dejected, walks away grieving because he says, I don't, I don't know if I can, if I can let go of that, like, I don't know. And, and I think that speaks very pointedly to to what you're getting at here because at the end of the day like yeah you have this worked very well he had lived a good life he had sound theology he he had lived a good life and when he came face to face with jesus he wasn't able to follow jesus because he had gotten too comfortable with the mm-hmm. life that he built for himself yeah. and when we say that these are so we talk about like rotten fruit or empty calories or whatever is it serving you well if you feel good but when you come face to face with jesus you can't follow mm. And Thank and you. then Jesus says that it's it look now it it is harder for a uh, uh, it is a easier for a camel to 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 get through the eye of a needle than it is for a mm-hmm. rich man to enter the kingdom because it it shows where you, where your treasure is placed right mm-hmm. Jesus goes out of his way to find himself among or to to to, to serve among the people who are on the margins. Jesus doesn't go to the centers of power and and build himself uh, a a dwelling there. That's not where Jesus goes. That's not how that works. So when we talk about recognizing the patterns, we're doing all that stuff. It's a matter of like, no, these are the words that came out of Jesus' mouth, according to our own scriptures. Uh, Material privilege, no, that's going to be an obstacle for you, getting into this kingdom that you say you believe in. Right. Yeah. And I want to. I want to t- bring this around to the people who are not like you and me, who aren't like we're we're we are asking ourselves these critical questions. Maybe because we're predisposed to that. Maybe because we're we're nerds in the theology realm. Right? We we think we think about hermeneutics and things like that. And what I look around and see is like I see folks they're going to a community of faith, right? Yeah. And there's they're going there because there's a lot of resources or there's um you know uh maybe it's wrapped in a shiny package or maybe there's something charismatic about the people who are at the front of it or maybe the quality of what they see is super high but as they consume that sooner or later what bubbles up is that you know the theology right that they're getting is rotten fruit that's not yeah. serving them well, or it's not serving people that they care about well, right? right. Like, so you go to this church and like, you know, uh, you you would like for, you know, your, your gay neighbor to be able to come with you. And so you get engaged in this community for all these other reasons. And then you realize that they've been feeding you a theology that tells you that your gay neighbor actually isn't welcome there. Right. And so uh, I, 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 I'm trying to, um, where, where I can, trying to push people on that when they're, when they're looking at like, what table do I sit down at here? Right? Like, where do I want to sit down 
to to be fed, um, to share with people, to be in community with people, to really discern and try to see through, you know, what's what's being offered here. Like what right. am I, what what is the hermeneutic, right? What is the way that these people are looking at scripture? Because sooner or later, no matter how many awesome worship services and light shows and visitor centers and all of that stuff. It's sooner or later you start looking at what's on your plate. Yeah. And, and that's when it all comes home and you realize, Oh man, I've been sitting here and what they've been serving me isn't taking me in the direction of the, the world that I want to live in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I wonder about how do we encourage people in our communities you know, who are, are not are thinking about this more casually, right, th- than we right. might be, um, to have a more discerning eye. You know, what's a hermeneutic, what's a, what's a way of thinking about and, and having, having hermeneutic be part of your decision-making process if you don't know what the word herm- hermeneutic means, right? Yeah, I think there's, okay, two answers to this question. On the one hand, there has to be an intentionality among ministers such as ourselves and a, a willingness to get uncomfortable because the problem is, and, and this is a very legitimate concern that after a while, it just seems like you're pulling out the threads of people's faith. Um, when, if you, if you try to take them into the deep end too quickly, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like you're just trying to unravel things and there's, it comes a point if you do that in the wrong way, it's not very pastoral. Like there, there's a way to go right. about doing this delicately where you expect where you respect where people are, um, even as you're trying to, to 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 call them into a place that might be deeper, you know? Um, so you can't like just dive in there. I don't I don't ever intend on turning any any church function into a seminary classroom. Like I don't I don't, I don't teach people um hermeneutics for the sake of doing hermeneutics, but I do try to highlight the fact that the Bible is in fact a library because I feel like it's, uh, that helps bring the, the, the Bible alive when we allow ourselves to see it for what it is and not just like a car manual or a structure manual, but as the collected stories of a people mm-hmm. over time, over, over thousands of years. Um, and when we view them as stories, we get to ask questions of the stories and, and, and try to fill in some of the blanks where it's like, Oh, how, how do, what, what, what do you think? What do you think Mary and Joseph did with the the gold frankincense and myrrh that were brought there? Like little questions like that are like, do you do you think that Jesus came three weeks early or or was, was he late? Do you think Mary was ready to pop or like like you know, stuff like that? When 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 you are allowed to go into the text, um, I think framing it that way and approaching it that way frees us of the tendency to just view the Bible as mm. the reasons for the things that we do. And, and and the the reason for the, the the way that we think, right? Because a lot of times the Bible is just the crutch we use for for the things we've already believed, as opposed to the mm-hmm. the repository of stories that we are able to engage with and, and help us process the things that we see. Um, but the other aspect of that is, I don't think it's my job to take everybody there. Mm. Like when 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 it comes to uh, trying to convince a bunch of people, like I don't, I don't, I don't know that that's my job. My job as a pastor is to sit with people where they are. Um, and one of the mm. things about it, because I, I was thinking about this in general, um, 
the printing press changed a lot. The church has not been the same since the printing press. Uh, the printing press helped the Protestant Reformation become what it was. And I think that in our generation, the smartphone has done something very similar. Like we're now able to access information faster than we ever have before, be exposed to more perspectives, but that doesn't happen at the same speed for everybody. And so with that comes like a lot of people are afraid of this whole uh, deconstruction craze, right? Oh, people yeah, are now yeah, asking yeah. questions about their faith, but uh, it, that, that is what it is. That's here. Like we can't do anything about it. My job as a pastor is to be able to walk with people through that process, um, wh wherever it, it might take them to, to, to be able to be a calming voice um, as one who's influenced by the Lord. That, that That's my job. My job isn't to sit there and drag you through deconstruction if God hasn't called you to it. My job isn't to sit there and, and, and call you into this. But at the same time, um, there is a responsibility when we see people living in ways um, that are harmful to their neighbors and putting that on their faith. Um, as, as people of faith, ministers of this faith, we do have a responsibility to be like, uh, I don't know about all that. Like, I, I, I think there's another way. My job ain't to argue till we blew in the face. Like, like I'm not going back and forth with everybody on this for the simple fact that I, I've done, I've done my work, you know? Um, and just like Jesus sent his disciples and it was like, Hey, if they receive your peace, let your peace rest upon them. And if they reject you, dust your sandals off, keep moving, you know? Uh -huh. uh, and that's how it goes. I'm not about to waste a whole lot of time wrestling with people who do not feel um, as though they're hearing God operate in, in, in the ministry that I conduct, you know? Uh -huh. That's a good word. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you on that. And I, I think it is, that's the art ministry right like yeah because it's, it's not a science right you you have to figure out that deft touch of like where people are where can i push them where should i where where do they need reassurance right when is the time to challenge them when is the time not to challenge them uh all of those things um factor factor into that i think that's a good word for for how we think about that and you know it is a it i think what you said about smartphones is true in that uh, it, it does connect people with lots of different different information. Collect, connects people with lots of different perspectives. I think it also connects people who are vulnerable for what in whatever way to bad information and bad ideas, yeah. and yeah. and and other people who are quite prepared to go with them down that bad uh, in that in that wrong road. Yeah. And so it does muddy the waters for us because it feels like. We're we're in this big tide of of things that are all that are going in some some wild directions that you know it seems like really like this is this is what we're doing this is what we're talking about this is what we're about right now right. and uh, it, you know it feels it can feel a little overwhelming to be a leader in the midst of that but you have to you know like you I think what you were saying is you know bringing it back down to all right who's who who's who's God put into my circle right now right. you know that I can that I can impact or. Uh, who or who tr would trust my leadership in this way right um yeah well trey is there anything else that you wanted to t talk about that we didn't talk about anything else you wanted to to explore no my brother i think i think i think uh we, we as, as as i would say as i'm including the church service i, I believe that we've done all that god has called us to do on this day well <laughs> What what I do want to say is that I'm encouraged by this conversation because I I, I am not one who believes that one on one conversation is going to solve 
the issues of racism, homophobia, misogyny in the world, right? But I do believe that people who are willing to sit and have conversations, not for the sake of arguing or debating, but coming to understand the reality that uh, people have different lived experiences. Um, that's a project of rehumanization and 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 seeing the full humanity in other people, not, not holding up to the light of our own, but understanding the very different images of God um, or, or the image of God that is stamped in all of these different people, right? Uh, I think part of what salvation is, is a project in rehumanization and us having our vision reset uh, to be able to see people as God does. And in these conversations and what you're doing here, I see a desire to have people's vision reset in that way. Um, and so I want to encourage you in that and thank you for um, having me, having this conversation with me. Um, it's blessed me in a rich way. Well, I appreciate that. I'm glad, I'm glad because I think it's, it's definitely been a blessing for me and it will be, I think for anybody who hears it. And that's why, you know, uh, there is, um, in some of the other conversations in these episodes, we we've ranged from talking primarily about race, talking primarily about gender, talking primarily about sexuality and, and none of them solve anything, right? right. None, none of them fix anything. Um, but I, I, my hope is that sometimes, like you said, like resetting some of our framework, hearing things that stretch our, our perspectives can create the conditions for us to do the work that yeah. really undoes systemic racism or patriarchy or any of the other things that, that, um, that keep us from being fully human, right. With each other. Yeah. Um, so yeah, appreciate it. Hopefully there's, we can t talk more and be connected more down the road. Uh, appreciate what you do. Uh, tell folks how they can find you. Yeah, y'all can find me at uh, at Pastor Trey 5 on all the socials. I don't know how much longer Twitter gonna be around, but I'm there. Uh, <laughs> I'm on Instagram, Pastor Trey 5 I'm technically on TikTok, but that's for the youth, so I don't be on there uh, uh, posting too much. You can uh, I have a newsletter, PastorTrey05.substack.com. You can subscribe there. I post typically uh, at least once or twice a week usually out there um and i do read all the comments re re reply to all the emails so that's a great way if you uh, want to touch base to do that there i'm also uh, one of the three hosts of the three black men podcast where we talk about theology culture and the world around us and the host of the new living translations bonafide baba talk with yours truly pastor trey um <laughs> so i'm really i'm, I'm out here I ain't, I ain't hard to find <laughs> yeah that's good that's good and uh you know i think there's uh that's one of the things that um, uh, that that our technology does make possible, right? It gives us uh, opportunities for um, uh, for people to make connections and exchange thoughts and ideas that uh, we might not have had before. And so, you, I'm glad you shared that. You are out there in a, in a lot of great ways. So I hope people will go and and find you and subscribe to to the newsletter and. Um, and read what you have to share there, find the podcast, um, all of those things. So appreciate yeah, you being with us and sharing with that with everybody. It's been an honor. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. All right.
There were moments in my conversation with Trey that made me want to put a bookmark or jot down a quote or uh, something that would stick with me. Uh, and maybe there were those things for you as well in the midst of that conversation. I came away uh, thinking deeply about the lens through which I see the Bible, how we use the Bible, how we share it, and what form it takes in our communities. How do we uh, encourage each other and hold each other accountable uh, for sitting down at tables where we are really fed uh, the gospel in ways that will draw us close to the Christ that we are seeking to serve I'm grateful for Trey's gifts, uh, for the ministry that he's doing, and for him taking the time to chat. My next guest is Melissa Flora Bixler. Melissa was one of the four contributors to my book, and more notably, the author of two books of her own, one of which is How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger, and the Work of Peace. And Melissa's done some great work helping us to think through what's worth having conflict about, uh, who suffers when we are afraid to talk about things that matter, and of course, we touched on the imprint of patriarchy on our culture as well. Let's listen into a clip. And so, when I think about you know communion, actually, one of the one of the places I'm sort of rest, I'm I'm thinking through right now is are are both the attempts to sort of protect the table from anyone who does anything wrong, right? Is sort of thinking like the Catholic, some parts of the Catholic Church in response to Nancy Pelosi. But also, is that sort of a mirror of this? Um, well, anyone could come, you know, there's no, nothing is out of bounds in the sense of we don't want to actually wrestle with the possibility of failure at the table. Um, mm. Instead of seeing the table as a place where, where failure of unity is built into the sacrament itself, where we are risking that every time have we removed the possibility of risk on both ends of mm. that? And so we never have to say um, in, in sort of this, I think, liberal Protestant version, oh, what does it mean for, for me to come and be made one in the body of Christ with my abuser, right? We don't, we do, um, we don't have to rec reckon with, with, with the possibilities that the sacrament has failed. Straight White Male is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and produced by Jeff Crawford. You can learn more about the studio at arborridgestudios.com. Music in this episode is by Josh Kimbrough, available on all streaming platforms. You can find me at chrisfur.com, where you can listen to past interviews, buy my book, or inquire about workshops or speaking engagements as well. Remember to rate and review this podcast on the platform of your choice. It really does help. Thanks for listening.